0: There are many reasons not to believe in God. Even as Christians, it's often hard to reconcile certain realities of life or faith with the existence of God. How could a loving God send people to hell? Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? With all the evil and suffering in the world, how could you believe in a good God? Well, these are difficult questions. So let's take an honest look at them as we talk about why I struggled to believe in God. Heavy revelation on y'all today. A very heavy, very heavy revelation on y'all today. So the Bible, it is the sacred text of the Christian faith. I know some of y'all are like, if that's what I came here for, I should have stayed home. <laughs> but the Bible is what Christians believe to be the word of God. And it is. But the thing about the Bible is that it's not merely one book. What it is instead is that it is a collection of books written by or books or writings written by 40 different authors across the span of about 1600 years on three different continents, Africa europe and asia but the thing about the bible is that even though it's so many books from genesis to revelation there's a scarlet thread that goes throughout from genesis to revelation it all contains one single narrative as one precept builds upon another now the thing about the bible is that it's often criticized from people outside the faith and even some of those inside the faith who struggle to believe it is that it's something that is it's outdated It's archaic. It's something that's antiquated. You know, it's just a relic to be left in the past. And for that reason, I struggle with it. Is the Bible inerrant? Is it infallible? Is it something I can trust for rule over my life? This is something that, you know, we should just leave, you know, back in the past so that we can lead towards a more progressive future. So now a lot of people will say these things. And as Christians, what in the world should we do with these claims? Should we just stick our heads in the proverbial sand and say, you know what, no, no. You know, because there's this thing called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance basically states that I have these, these, these firmly held beliefs, things I've held onto for nearly all of my life, and then now there's this competing information. It comes directly at me, and instead of processing through this information, I instead put up a wall and I ignore it and say, you know what, I don't need to worry about that. You know, because it's just its, just, it's just something I shouldn't have to worry about because the Bible is true because it says that it is. So, now, we don't get to do that, y'all. As Christians, what we must do is process through these things and blast past that cognitive dissonance because we don't want to just stay there for the sake of maintaining comfort. So, today we're going to be glossing over a few of those different topics that challenge the Bible as we're trying to see if this is something that God really gave us or if this is something that is merely man. So, with all that being said, I gave you a bunch of information already. But my name is Fred Gallup. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to say it is so beautiful to be preaching in front of people again. Oh, what? So, I preached a four part series not too long ago and I was preaching to a camera and everything was awkward. Listen, y'all, I am a raging extrovert and I love feeding off the energy of people. So, preaching to a camera? I Man, I felt so far out of my element, and I was just an awkward person. So, I'm already awkward, period, but preaching to a camera. But anyway, so, I just want to say, y'all... Y'all coming to this Apologetic Series, I just want to welcome y'all and say thank you so much for coming, whether you're joining us here in the auditorium or you're joining us via screen somewhere. Thank you so much. Even if you don't believe the things that we believe, especially about the Bible that we're going to be talking about today, we just want to say thank God for allowing you to spend time with us. We value you and we treasure your input in all of this. So, for an overview... So, throughout the course of this series, even moving forward, we're going to be dealing with a number of what's called apologetic topics. So, apologetic, I'm going to be dropping a lot of big words on y'all today. So, anybody who's been in any one of my small groups, you know we say big words. So, uh, but I'm going to be qualifying and breaking them down to make sure we walk away with a good understanding, at least a basic understanding. So, with that being said, apologetic is just a fancy word that simply means a reasoned defense of the faith. So what apologetics do is that they can't save anybody because only Christ alone can do that. But what apologetics do is that it removes the barrier or barriers between the individual and the grace of God so the person can see God for who he actually is. So whether those uh, barriers are intellectual, moral, based on life circumstances, church hurt, apologetics addresses those, and it helps us to be able to process through that. Now, but many of you don't even need apologetics because you have what I like to call simple faith. So, when I say simple faith, I do not mean that to be condescending, and I don't mean that as an insult. Basically, simple faith for, you know, people who have simple faith is God said it, I believe it, and it is so. So where are my simple faith people at? Amen. Now, I respect y'all for that because not everybody can just trust God the way that you do. So you're going to have to bear with us. And that's why we're doing this apologetic series. So like I said, that's not the case for everybody. And some of us need a little bit more convincing. And that's okay. That's okay. Because here's another bombshell revelation for you. Here's another bombshell. God can handle your doubts. So now here's the thing about God. He's not sitting up in heaven whenever you have a doubt. He's like, oh, my me. (laughs) You know, we say, oh, my God. I'm super corny. I got three kids. I'm just corny. I gave up my cool so long ago. But God is not like, oh, my me. This person's struggling with doubt. Whatever shall I do? That's not what God is doing. God is like, you know what, continue to search that? Come on. I got, listen, you're coming through the front door now. I got so much more of the kingdom to show you. Use your doubts to honor God. I know that sounds absolutely crazy. So for this week, today, we're going to be talking about the Bible. Now, where are my people who went to Sunday school? Grew up on Sunday school. Now, I'm about to test you. I'm about to test you real quick. So Sunday school, Sunday school, I want you to to finish this statement for me, okay? Okay? The B-I-B-L-E, I I stand alone, the B-I-B-L-E. Give yourselves a round of applause because you paid attention. You paid attention. So we're going to be talking about why the Bible is trustworthy. So spoiler alert, we do believe the Bible is trustworthy. Obviously, we're a church who uses the Bible. So we're going to be looking at why and then why in the West, especially in the West, so many people are falling away from believing that the Bible is trustworthy. So as we're getting to our main text for the scripture, uh, our main scripture for today, um, we're going to be utilizing the New Living Translation of the Bible, and I absolutely love this translation because I'm one of the people who are simple-minded, and I believe that you should have a translation you can understand. Yes. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. So, main scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Now, notice here in the scripture, it says, some scripture, Right? most scripture right all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what's right God uses us, God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work it's a lot that Paul is saying about the Bible so again the big idea for today is we affirm the Bible as the Word of God. We affirm the Bible as the Word of God. So, context. So, anybody who knows me, who has sat in one of my groups, who's ever paid attention to me preaching, know I have this saying about context. So, what do I always say about context? Context determines me. And shout out to y'all over there, in my amen corner. So, because Context determines meaning. Without it, we are absolutely lost in the scriptures because here's a, here's a newsflash. Anybody ever been outside the country? You know, you ever you ever talk to people who speak a different language than you? Now, imagine being in a different culture 2000 years ago. Context determines meaning. The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. It was written to a group of people who existed back then, but we extract principles from it to guide our lives. So this is why we have to dig into the context of this. So basically what's happening in this context is that Paul is writing to his young disciple named Timothy, who was a bishop in the church at this place called Ephesus, which was a part of the uh, uh, surrounding areas at that time. So, timothy was a young dude and then paul was admonishing him he was he was encouraging him saying listen y'all my time's almost up but i'm passing the torch to you my brother and things are getting increasingly wicked. People are not believing the scriptures anymore. All these sorts of things are happening. People are going to become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. People are going to challenge the scriptures. And Timothy was living in a very godless area called Ephesus where they didn't even know anything about the scriptures. But Paul says this to Timothy He says, Listen, all of this scripture that you're reading, that I'm teaching you, this comes directly from God Himself. So the same scriptures that God used to save you are the same scriptures that God is going to use to keep you. And that's the same scriptures that God is going to use to ensure that you are fruitful in everything that he's assigned for you to do. So Timothy, I admonish you to cling to these scriptures with everything that you have, even if you don't understand everything that's inside of them. And we can take great comfort in that because Paul said it. Now, it is abundantly clear. If you ever go back and read Paul's letters to the, to the other churches, and you go back and you look at the account of his life from the book of Acts, he was a man of radical faith. <laughs> radical faith. This man went through it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. But what makes Paul so sure that the scriptures that he's reading are trustworthy? What makes us so sure of that? I mean, after all, he was a primitive Christian philosopher who lived during the early to mid-Iron Age who had pre-scientific thought. What makes us so sure in this post postmodern world that we live in that there is a such thing as truth and then you know we have all these technological and scientific advances that we had what makes us so sure that this bible that was written in a in a in a very ignorant time in human history penned by man written by man what makes us so sure that we can trust this bible and use it to apply to our lives like okay i'm glad you asked that question i'm glad you asked that question because because today while it won't be an exhaustive look at it, we're going to be looking at some of the most pressing things to see why the Bible is indeed trustworthy. And I know I'm going to say something really, really weird here, really weird here, but (laughs) there's this atheistic philosopher. His words can give us comfort. You're like, man, what in the world? you a church. Talking about atheists, about a quote of atheists? So there's this atheistic philosopher and astronomer by the name of Carl Sagan. And he proposed what we call today the Sagan standard. The Sagan standard. And that Sagan standard is this, he posits this. He says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So what's the extraordinary claim that we're making? We are making the claim that this series of books that we have called the Bible, written by men in an earlier time in human history, are the word of God that's going to last forever and keep humanity in place and give glory to God. How in the world can we say that? Well, in order to properly communicate that, there's three main points that I'm going to be giving y'all today. So the first one is the internal evidence. The internal evidence. The second one is going to be the external evidence, and lastly, all of that wrapped up into the transformed life. So three things that prove the Bible is trustworthy. The internal evidence, the external evidence, and the transformed life. So listen, I can nerd out over this stuff all day long. I just finished seminary a couple months ago, and praise be to God, I am done. Oh my gosh. Just when I thought I was done, I got to start a doctorate here soon. But listen, man, all I want to do is play video games. But God has called me to this. So I was like, all right, God, I guess I'm going to do it. So, but listen, I can nerd out over this stuff, y'all, but I promise you that, again, we're going to be dealing with some complex things, but I'm going to leave you with some things that you can take away from it. But I have to be able to talk to the skeptic in the room, so that's why we're going to be dealing with a few different complex things. So, first and foremost, main point one, the internal evidence, internal evidence. So, to, to describe the Bible's internal evidence, I'm giving you two things. One, the Bible's claim to truth, and secondly, fulfilled prophecy the bible's claim the truth and fulfilled prophecy so now i know what some of you were thinking about main point i'm sorry sub point number one some of you are thinking dude you got to give me something better than that the bible says that it's true so it is true surely that's called circular reasoning so (laughs) but i'm gonna tell you slow the heck down let me build my case We're going to see what we can deduce from this, all right? So now, I'm going to give you an example of some circular reasoning. So person A, I don't know why every time I do this, I put on a southern accent. So person A is, the Bible is true. Skeptic, how do you know that? (laughs) Believer, because the Bible says it's true. Skeptic, that's hogwash. You can't prove the Bible with the Bible. Yes, you can, because the Bible says it's true, and I believe the Bible, so therefore it's true. <laughs> That's what's called circular reasoning. And I, I, I will admit, when I first came to the Lord, that was Fred Gallup. who uh, employed uh, circular reasoning. But I know that some of you have heard this before. Maybe you've even been that person that applied that same thing. But here's the thing. I'm going to show you why it's not circular reasoning. Circular reasoning says you prove, you use something to prove itself to be true. Okay, so so on the surface, it looks like circular reasoning. But the difference is, is that you have 40 different authors writing 66 different books. Circular reasoning would be if I was an author and then to prove a point that I made, I went to another book that I wrote to prove myself to be true. (laughs) You can't do that. That's bad scholarship. However, with the Bible, you have a consistent message that builds. It's almost like an encyclopedia. I know some of us old enough to remember, we actually had books for encyclopedias. Like, like you know, y'all remember that. It was was Encyclopedia Britannica, and you actually had to go to these places, kids called libraries, so to, to rent out what's called books, you know. But, um, but in this case, you have 40 different authors from different walks of life, In different scenarios and different time frames that all heard from God and their messages validated one another and that same truth carried them from generation to generation. So from Asia to Africa to Europe, the places where the happenings of the Bible took place, God chose so many different people to say, listen, this is not just coming from one source. This is coming from 40 different sources in numerous contexts. So that is why it's not circular reasoning. Now, if you use one scholar's book and then you say, no, this scholar over here agrees, this scholar over here agrees, and so does—imagine if there's 40 of those that all testify about the same truth. That message is going to more than likely be true, y'all. So, it's not circular reasoning because it comes— from different sources. Now, time won't allow me to go into the all the different Bible's uh, claims to truth. But what I do want to do is move to the second, uh, major, uh, second uh, minor point is that the Bible, one of the key elements inside the Bible, internal evidence, is that the Bible has so much fulfilled prophecy in it so much fulfilled prophecy. Now, when we talk about fulfilled prophecy, first and foremost, we got to define what prophecy is. So prophecy is simply a prediction or an inspired utterance. um, And the Bible describes it this way from Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, part B of that verse. It says that the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. So the very stuff that makes up prophecy is to give uh, praise to Jesus. That's what prophecy is all about. So now, if you want us to go and look at fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, all you got to do is go to Dr. Google. Go to Dr. Google and just type in fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. You're going to find hundreds and thousands of them. But I want to show you one specific fulfilled prophecy. Now, from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, let's look at this real quickly. So I want you to notice something. This has been a Uh, This whole Matthew chapter 24, it it falls into what's called apocalyptic literature. So like kind of with Revelation and the book of Ezekiel, some parts of the book of Daniel, which means that it's an unveiling or a revealing of things that would take place, almost like a sort of prophetic uh, type of literature. So Jesus here, he's describing something very specific here. So now Jesus, it says, as Jesus was leaving the what? Temple grounds. So we got context here. What's the context? The what? The temple. Okay, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings, but he responded. He said, do you see all of these buildings? I tell you the truth, that they will be completely demolished. Not one stone left on top of another. So. Again, this has been a chapter in a Bible that has plagued many end times interpreters for good reason, because this can be a little bit challenging, y'all. But let's see what Jesus actually meant by this. Now, the thing about prophecy is that some people say they're being prophetic or some certain worldviews say it's being prophetic. But listen, when we talk about prophecy. It's not one day people will be bad. (laughs) So. It's got to be specific, it's got to be time-bound, and most importantly, it has to actually happen. So, Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, more context for you. So Jesus is going around talking about, you know, end times. He's talking about, you know, world wars and rumors of wars, earthquake, famine in diverse places, all these bad things going to take place. And, you know, people always, you know, that, you know how we do. Every time something happens, whether it be a virus outbreak or whether it be a, a hit, you know, back on the East Coast where I'm from, they got hurricanes. Like, man, another hurricane? It must be the end times. Like, these happen every year, sweetheart. <laughs> like every, and then, you know, you know how some folks, you know, but the, the, the crazy wildfires going on, you know, you look outside. Yes, there is like, there's, it's a blood sun, which is nowhere in the Bible. It talks about blood moons. Oh, my God, this must be the end times. Wyoming's on fire. <laughs> you know how we do. But no, let's see what's actually taking place here. Jesus says in this verse, I tell you the truth that who? This generation will by no means pass from the scene until all of these things take place. So he's talking about the wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in diverse places. He's saying to his audience, y'all going to see this. Y'all going to see this. He's not prophesying necessarily something thousands of years into the future because he says this generation, y'all who are listening to me are going to see what's transpiring here. So now what is this event that took place? In 70 A.D., 70 A.D., the Romans came in and ramsacked the temple. It burned Jerusalem to the ground in what was one of the worst events in the history of Israel. So Jesus literally predicted a specific incident that was going to take place just 40 short years while that same generation who was there heard him speak, they actually saw it take place. So as far as the internal evidence for the Bible's reliability, we do have the Bible's truth claim for itself, showing how it's not circular reasoning. And then we have fulfilled prophecy. So now we're going to get into what I like to call the external evidence. And then now I'm about to be get a uh, real nerdy on y'all. I know some of y'all like, bro, you've been part in nerdy for quite some time, you know, but put on your thinking caps because again, we're going to qualify everything. We're going to make sure you at least have a working understanding here. So now it's often been posited that the Bible... Has been written by men. So therefore, it's untrustworthy. Y'all heard that before? Yeah, y'all heard that before. Oh, it was written by men, and men are fallible. Men are fallible. It was written by, written by women. We know it was true. <laughs> so, like, you know, men are fallible. You know, men are, men are messy. You know, people are messy. Um, you know, people, they manipulate the scriptures to get a certain, you know, of course, the, how can you make sure it's true? Because it's written in different languages. We don't even speak those languages today. It was written by people who just simply wanted to control people. Y'all heard all those things before. And what I say to that, we have to take those claims seriously, Right? We have to. We have to take those claims seriously because people are positing them. But there's this thing called facts. <laughs> so, and in facts, they actually, here's a, another bombshell I'm going to drop on you. Ready for this, boss man? Facts overrule opinion. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm about to give you a little bit, a couple nuggets. So, Bible's written up in between two major like sections of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to talk about the Old Testament first. So the Old Testament, here's how we know the Old Testament is indeed true. So back in 1947, this major event took place. This major happening took place that proved the reliability of the Old Testament. So in a place called Qumran, Israel, about a 20 minute drive just outside of um, Jerusalem, uh, about 20 minutes straight east, There was on the Dead Sea, this little uh, community, and um, there was some caves. The picture's going to be popping up here. And there was this goat herder out there just minding his business, tending to his goats. Just minding his business, minding his business, you know, just out there, you know, tending to the goats and everything. And he uh, throws a rock into a cave and he hears this sound. So he says, you know what? Like any stupid male, we're going to go in and check it out. (laughs) So, but praise God for his stupidity. So, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But he goes in and he finds these large clay jars. And then, of course, with some digging and some excavating and some research and everything, Bible scholars, they found a bunch of different things about this Qumran community. And what they found is every single book of the Old Testament, with the exception of two books, esther and nehemiah found in those large clay jars and these these scrolls these dead sea scrolls that you see on the screen here they predate jesus so what they did is they said hey you know what We've, this is a major discovery here let's go and let's compare and contrast what we see with our old testament now and this old testament that we have here so what they did is they, they harmonize these things and marry them together and guess what they found y'all these things from over 2,000 years ago to where we are today, they say the exact same thing. Look how God preserves his word. So that's just the Old Testament. So most people say, you know, oh, the Old Testament's cool, but it's the New Testament that gets the most flack. And why is that? Why is that? Because the New Testament, see, people say, oh, we don't even have any original copies of the New Testament. I'll give you that. We don't. We have none. There are none. No original copies. What we do have is copies of copies, 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 of copies. copies. And then what the people say is that it's like the telephone game. You know, you start off with one part, you you pass a message along, and by the time it gets to the end of the line, what happens to the message? It's all skewed up, it's changed, it's probably something completely childish and different because if you're anything like me as a child, I'm gonna purposely change the message because I am a troll. (laughs) So now, we, okay, so when we talk about these things, so there's these things called manuscripts. And what manuscripts are, they're just basically just like, you know, religious documentation of something that took place then. So these manuscripts are just simply the writings that, that, that took place. So these manuscripts, one, two, I'm going to talk about two very famous ones. The first one is called P or Papyrus, P-75. You don't need to remember the names of these. You need to remember the truth about them. Papyrus 75 and Codex Vaticanus. So Papyrus 75 is so important because, because it was was found, like it's it's a a really early copy. And what we found is that, you know, it was, it it, it proves that these things were actually written near the time of when, you know, these events took place. And then on the other hand, you got this one called Codex Vaticanus, which is housed in the uh, Vatican library. It's a fourth century manuscript. Mind you, this is very distant in time from each other. And then what we find is that these things were merged together again, say the same things. So here we have one string called P75 string another one called Codex Vaticanus, and all the ones in between and above. But these are two of the most famous ones. Again, copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And then what we found is that the text was almost the same, no matter what the source was. So why is all of this even important? Why do we even talk about this? How does this add to the legitimacy claims of the Bible? Well, historians tell us that the Bible is... The most, if not one of the most reliable, and credible documents in the history of humanity. The New Testament is perhaps the most widely attacked for reasons that we discussed. And the reason why is because if it's so many copies, surely there's going to be something wrong in those copies. But again, with these historians and these language experts, what they actually found is that they want to do a bunch of different copies. Because if there are a bunch of different copies and they all say the same thing, then what does that say about the text? is that it is true. It is reliable. So let me show you a quote. It's actually a quote from this guy named um, Greg Kukul as he recalls the work of the famous Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce. Look at what he says here. He says, of the, now there are some differences. There are some minor differences and that we have to be completely honest and transparent. He says, of the remaining differences, virtually all yields to what's called textual criticism, or the way they break it down to see if it's actually like reliable, this means that our New Testament is more than how pu- how textually pure. Ninety-nine point five percent. Textually pure. In the entire 2,000 lines, only 40 lines of scripture are in doubt. And that's only about 400 words. And none of this affects any significant doctrine. So praise God who is able to keep his word, y'all. Now, if God is able to keep his word and preserve his word and to show you all throughout time he's been able to sustain this, then imagine what God can do for the image bearer, you who was created in his image and likeness. If God cares enough to make sure that you have a reliable witness that testifies to his glory written on paper, imagine how much God cares for you. It says, just look back over the course of your life and see every single way I provided for you. There are so many different times where you in your own life, you had no idea how you were going to make it through a situation. You had too much month at the end of your money. You had, you had a situation with your, with, with your loved ones. You had health crisis, but yet here you stand and God has preserved you. So glory to God who preserves his word and his people. Yeah. <laughs> so for comparison's sake, y'all, for comparison's sake, a well-known ancient document known as the Iliad, some of you may remember that because a guy named Homer, um, it's one of the most well-known and, 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 you know, it's widely accepted in writings in ancient history. So the Iliad, it has 643 original language copies. The one that is the earliest was written or copied 500 years after the actual Iliad was written. 500 years. So let's compare this to the New Testament alone. So remember, the Iliad, 643 different original language copies 500 years being the earliest the new testament I, new testament says god says you know what <laughs> i see your 643 now let me raise you 5800 5,800 original language manuscripts that all scholars unanimously and unequivocally agree that these things are indeed verifiable. Some scholars even recognize up to 25. 1000 y'all. So we compared 25,000, even 5,800 to 643. We've got a reliable New Testament. We have one. The New Testament has the greatest number of manuscripts written in antiquity. So now that is impressive and is a testimony to our God, y'all. He is able to preserve his word. Anybody who's ever been in the Air Force, you know, I love what Paul says to Timothy. He says, you know, to endure, to endure like a good soldier. But you know what, let me take and make an adjustment to that. to to endure like a good airman, baby. Woo, Air Force, aim high. Yeah, Air Force. You know, we see what the Army folks do. We're like, we're impressed and everything. (laughs) But we're better. But anyway, so, um, (laughs) but he's from, anybody who's been to the Middle East, they know that those sandstorms over there are something vicious. Those things are crazy. So, God was able to preserve His Word through all that the rains, the winds, fallible humankind. He was able to preserve that. God is surely to preserve you. Now, here's the thing. With all that being said, the question is no longer whether or not the Bible's accurate. Because anybody who posits that is not, you have information to challenge them on that. Challenge them in love, don't go arguing at them. So the question is not whether or not the Bible is accurate or not, but it's whether or not I it authority over my life. That's, that's, that's the take-home point here. So we talked about the internal evidence and the external evidence, but now the greatest evidence for the Bible's veracity is indeed the transformed life. Let's look at a scripture. John chapter 6, verse 66 through 68. Jesus says this, or the Bible says this. It says, at this point, many of his being Jesus' disciples, they turned away and they left him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked them, he says, He says, are you going to leave? But Simon Peter, he replied, Lord, to whom, where, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So, do you see the faith that Peter has? So, Peter's like, listen, Jesus, I have so many questions. And the good thing about the Bible is that the Bible never says to not question God. You will never find that in the Bible, ever, ever. But Peter says, listen, <laughs> I don't have this all figured out. There are so many questions that I have for you, Lord. Let's even make this personal. Jesus... As I look through and I look through the Old Testament and I see the the slaughter that you commanded. I see the fact that you're telling me that you're the only way to salvation, but there are so many people all over the world who have never heard of your name. Do they just die and go to hell? Lord, I've been abused. (laughs) I've been taken advantage of by people in church. I have church hurt. This doesn't make sense scientifically. How can miracles be true? How in the world that you create the world from everything? I mean, from nothing at all whatsoever. I have so many questions, Jesus. Jesus, I am broken from the way that I have been handled. But <laughs> Peter says, Jesus, you, you have the words of eternal life. Jesus is like, everybody's turned away from me. Are you going to in turn do the same thing and follow the crowd? But Peter says, listen, I know I'm feeble. I know I'm limited and I know I'm finite. And at no point on this side of glory will I ever have anything figured out. But God, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. You have been too good to me, Lord. As I look back over the course of my life and everything that you brought me through, Lord, how in the world, despite these silly, God, these, 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 these silly questions that I have, how in the world— Can I depart and walk away from you when you've been the only constant that has kept me through everything I've gone through in my life, Jesus? So despite the fact that I've got so many questions, despite the fact that I don't know my left from my right, God, I know that you created both the left and the right. And that you have promised to keep me. Despite what my circumstance looks like, Lord, I trust you because you have promised to bring me to an expected end. God, your word says in Philippians 1 and 6, it says, the good things that you begin in me, you will complete them on the day of Christ Jesus. So will I forfeit all of that simply because I can't reconcile this with this in my own mind? Jesus. I am not going anywhere. It is for you that I live, and it is for you that I die. I will never depart from you, Jesus. I'm going to hold on with everything that I have because I know that, Lord, you are going to hold me. If it was left up to me, God, I would have walked away from you a long time ago. But your grace and your mercy are the two things that sustain me despite the trials that I go through in my own brain. So, Lord, I still got my questions. But even if they're never answered on this side of glory, I know that when I make it to you, God, you're going to reveal all things. People of God, that's the promise that we have. But this promise, and I'm going to say something really offensive here, this promise only applies to you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I know that's not popular today, but far be it from me if I would ever compromise on any part of God's Word for any reason at all whatsoever. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no other religious philosophy, no other man-made philosophy that's going to take you to this utopia that, that, that we so earnestly desire. None. What the Bible teaches us is the gospel. It says that God created us in His image and likeness he created us perfect and free from any defect. But we sinned and we fell short of His glory. And as a result of that, You and I, we only deserve judgment. But God loved us enough that instead of judging us and condemning us to what we rightly deserve, he sent his son to die in our place. He was dead. He died on that cross, and he was buried for three days. But he rose up with all power in his hand. he says, if you would just simply place your trust in me, your debt in heaven has been canceled. Praise the Lord. So if that is you, let's just pray this prayer. As we're closing out, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for what we've seen and what we've heard today. We know that so much of it, maybe has even gone over our heads, but we know that you've left us a reliable witness in your holy scriptures. And what your scriptures teach us is that if I would just believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that, God, you raised Jesus from the dead, then I shall be saved from my sins. So, Lord, I accept what you did for me on Calvary, and I commend my life to you. And as a result of what you did and the faith that I place in you, Lord, I am saved. Now, I know that this didn't answer every question that everybody has. It's impossible to appear. But I hope that this leads you to go back and study yourself. Study to show yourself approved. So as we're departing, I just want us to pray. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you everlasting peace and prosperity, spiritual prosperity. So God, we thank you for who you are and we give you glory. We pray that you bless your people and keep us until we meet again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Go and be dismissed. Love on somebody on your way out. and If you need prayer for any reason, there are folks in the back who'll be more than happy to pray with you. Go in peace. I love you. Praise the Lord.